You are listening to a message by Travis Scott from our gatherings at Shorebreak. Visit shorebreakchurch.com to get connected with more content. And if you would like to support the gospel being preached in Kona and to thousands online, your tax-deductible donation enables us to further Jesus' mission. Partner with us by giving at shorebreakchurch.com backslash give. Mahalo. Hey, aloha. How are you guys doing? You guys all right? All right. Hey, uh, my name's Travis. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If you're new, we're just visiting, kind of checking us out. We're so stoked and honored to have you guys joining with us as we're kind of in this transitional season where there's a lot of people off on vacation to other islands or on the mainland. And, and many of you, maybe some of you might be here on vacation. So it's just this unique time and season as a church. We've, we've actually just landed the plane. We've ended our series last week in the book of Ruth. And so now this week and next week, we have some special messages for you. And so be make, sure, make sure you're going to be out next week. And then we're excited to begin January 11th. We're making our way through the book of Philippians. And we are so stoked and excited about the book of Philippians. It is an incredible book. It is an extremely uh, confrontational book in the sense of Paul writing this letter, trying to exploit this theme of the joy in knowing Jesus, that no matter what season of life you're in, that that maybe you have a lot, maybe you have little, and all of these things that we would learn to find Jesus as our supreme source of joy. And so it is, um, I would encourage you to be reading ahead Um, Be in the word, be saturating your life, your mind, memorizing. There's a lot of really good verses in Philippians. So be taking that in, be absorbing the book of Philippians. And uh, it's it's an extremely uh, amazing book. So all I have to say, we're excited about going through that next week. But as we're moving into a new year, Thinking about what would be good for our church body. What is a message? What are some truths that we can kind of examine, that we can look at that would be helpful, that would be true, that would be good for our church body going into a new year? Because I rarely, um, because we just pick books of the Bible, we just, the, the Bible tells me what to preach. So today I actually had some freedom. What do what do I get to preach on? What are some things that would be good for us? What is going to be um, something that maybe God would have for us? And so... Um, thinking about our church body, considering what God would have to say in his word, I've been drawn to Isaiah chapter 6. So if you can make your way to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is um, specifically chapter 6. The whole book is incredible, but um, there's some incredible truths to be uncovered at the beginning of the chapter. So as you're making your way to Isaiah chapter 6, What we're going to look at in our time is God. We're going to look at God. We're going to talk about God. Now, before you, you know, kick it into cruise control, find your comfortable position in your seat, because I know those chairs aren't super comfortable, but before you get in your comfortable spot, fold up your notebook, close your Bibles, and begin to think, all right, God, I'm just going to, it's going to be one of those Sundays I can kind of easily make my way through. Um, not so much. Not, not, we're not going to let that, that happen, actually. Um, I'm going to make a bold statement. All of us, 
most of us, if not all of us, need new, a new understanding of God. Can you say in this moment in your life right now, you got God down? You could describe his character perfectly. You understand his attributes, the way that he works, the heart of redemption that God has. Yeah, sure, we can describe some of these elements of God, but can we nail it? Can we get it down? Can we say without a shadow of a doubt, we got this? Not at all. Paul said to the Corinthians that in this present age, we see through a glass clearly or dimly. Much like trying to view stars when you're inside of a limo with tinted windows at night, it's difficult. So we as creation are trying to behold and grasp a glorious God. And so as we are going to make our way through Isaiah 6, we need, you need, and I'm telling you, this message is for me. I'm preaching this message partly for my own soul and for our joy in here this morning that we would have and grasp a new understanding of God. Now, if you're not a Christian, of course, this is absolutely true, that you would see God, who he is, that you would glorify him, that you would worship him. And in addition to that, if you are mature, Acknowledging the reality that you too also need to grow in the knowledge and the holiness and the understanding of who God is. But if you're thinking, do I really need a new understanding of God? Whether you've walked with God for maybe one day or maybe you've walked with God for 4,000 days of your life, do you really need a new understanding of God? Is it that important? Is it that imperative? I want to ask you to think about and consider the life of Job. Job was blameless and upright. In fact, Job 1.1, we are told, there is a man whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from, from evil. So we meet this guy named Job, fears God, loves God, has a relationship with God, that, that he actually, because he fears God, turns his face away from evil and enjoys and worships God. Job was the best man in the land. No one more holy, no one greater. But then, because of the mercy of God, Job suffers greatly. Job is overwhelmed and overtaken by all the suffering in his life. And verse after verse, chapter after chapter, he's trying to make sense of all that is happening in his life. And so, getting the advice of, solicited some of it, yes, some of it not, including his own wife, which was terrible. Curse God, leave him, abandon him, look, look at all that has happened to you. 40 chapters later, he hears from God. 
What does God say to Job? Will you ever put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? God says, have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? Here is a godly man. Here is a man who is the best man in the land. Here is a man who still loves the Lord after all of his loss. Yet God says to Job, can you put me in the wrong? Job, after all that has happened to you, can you put me in the wrong? Are you going to put me in the prosecutor? Are you going to prosecute me? (laughs) Pretty intense what God would say to him. Can you condemn me? Do you have an arm like mine? Does your voice thunder like my voice thunders? Job then, after a rather lengthy (laughs) rebuke from God, a couple chapters long, I would actually encourage you to read it sometime, Job 40 to chapter 42. Um, God strips Job of everything. Says this, Job replies after that, all of that. Who is it that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Interesting. Here I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now I have seen you with my eyes. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And in that moment, this man who loves God, follows God, and fears God gains completely and utterly an entirely new understanding of God. He had, before this, a lame, inadequate view of God. And may our eyes behold the glory of God that what we would speak and look at this morning from Isaiah chapter 6 would, would sink into your soul. And some of the boats you guys have been sailing on of which you found yourself very comfortable and might be rocked quite a bit. Like if, if there was any Sunday, probably this year, that would have been like beach day, This Sunday, morning, beach day. Today would have probably been the day. But you're here, and I'm glad you are. And so let's look at Isaiah chapter 6. It's going to be heavy, but but here, here, let me just, give me, just give me this time. Don't don't just walk out because it's, it's heavy for a while. But trust me, all of that we're doing right now in our time, in God's word, right now, is for your joy. Okay? It's for my joy. Let's all stand. Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to pick it up. We're actually going to just read the first verse, but we are going to make our way further into the chapter. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Glorious and heavenly Father, 
we come to you as sinful man. Weak, prideful, arrogant, thinking we know what's best for our life, thinking we know how to run our own life, only thinking about our self-interest, worshiping and living for our own glory often. Even as Christians, even as people who love you, God, would you send your spirit to bear weight on the words that will be spoken this morning? May we reclaim awe of you. Seeing you for who you are, gaining new understanding of your majesty and your wholeness. You were simple and wonderful. Profound and glorious and unsearchable, God, are your ways. So as we endeavor to search in what is unsearchable, understand what is incomprehensible, we ask that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say. God, would you humble me, God? Would this message be for me as it would be for everyone, that I would be a faithful servant of your word, God? that we would all hear from you. And it's in Jesus' name we all pray. Amen and amen. You can be seated. We live in a time when sugar-free, gluten-free, fat-free, butter-free, anything free is just consuming our culture, right? I mean, it just absolutely is in, in every Way and some for good causes, whether it be light meat, light beer, fat free, there is almost a consumed culture behind all that is taking place, pun intended. There, that went past you, it's okay, we'll keep moving forward. But you're getting it now, that was quick, that was good. Um, one of those things is I remember uh, when I worked at Starbucks, I used to be a barista for actually a few years at Starbucks. And, and I blame all of my bitterness against that now. Um, it, it had its good days and it had its, ba- it had its bad days too. But, but one of the things that when I was working at Starbucks, now I don't know if they have it now at the time, but at the time they did not have uh, Stevia, but, but Stevia was just coming onto the scene. And so there is these people who would walk into Starbucks and be like, hello, so yeah, can I get that uh, grande Americano with uh, room for cream? And can you put some Stevia in there? It's like, oh, well, we don't have Stevia. What? Are you kidding me? You need to repent. Let me tell you about Stevia. And I actually had a name for these people and I called them Stevia Evangelists because they would evangelize on behalf of Stevia all of its wonders and its splendors and its glory. And people just love it. And and then I was like, well, what's Stevia? And a lot of these people, I'm actually not even sure, but it's really good for you. I promise. Like it's better than Splenda or whatever, that poison, that equal, equal, whatever. I never take any of that. So I'm a sugar in the raw kind of guy. Keep it on the islands, yo, all right? It's ridiculous, but it's true, it's true. Um, 
You know, there's this big gluten-free kick right now, too, that's happening, right? Now, now I am not oblivious to the fact that some of you in here are gluten-free. Now, if you have an allergy to gluten, I understand. But if you don't have an allergy to gluten, why would you do that to yourself? <laughs> have you had a pizza? Why would you miss out on pizza? Like, come on, gluten is glorious. But if, you know, if you can't enjoy it, if you can't enjoy it, don't enjoy it. Now, I know it's like the hipster trend thing to do right now. A lot of people are like, yeah, I don't, gluten's not my, th- I'm not into gluten, no gluten. And um, I actually, Jimmy Kimmel did this man on the street thing. And uh, I think in Hollywood. And so there's these people like man on the street, they're buff working out, like running. And, and so there's this girl for the Jimmy Kimmel show who does the, these interview questions like, yeah, so yeah, you're like super fit. So um, do you, do you take, um, are, are you, what, what kind of, are you on a gluten-free diet? It's like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm on a gluten-free diet. Dozens of people are asked. I'm totally on a gluten-free diet. What is, what is gluten? It was, it, was, it was comical to watch. It was, most of the people were like, yeah, you know, it's in bread and stuff, and it's, it's in pastas, and, but what is it? I, I don't know. I have, I have no idea what gluten is. We culturally have become sedated by lightweight, lean, passionate, free, whatever the noun would be, and we've become extremely passionate about it. Now, some for better, yes, and some for worse, but sadly... This trend has made its way into the church, into the pulpits of many pastors. It's popular in churches to be lightweight, to be fun. Yeah, let's laugh. Let's have a good time. Let's, let's talk about the good stuff. Let's, let's be fat-free, lightweight God. Let's not deal with the heavy things of God. Let's not deal with a lot of the truths that we don't know what to do with that are they're God has chosen to reveal to us, and let's just be fun. Let's have a good time, right? But sadly, that is the landscape of many churches. Many pulpits waste people's time, tickling their ears, feeding them only things they want to hear instead of the truth of God. Much like gluten, if you were to ask many Christians, you ask them, well, do you know God? Yes, who's God, they would have no answer to give for it at all. But today, you want to change that. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you may have your world rocked completely. That we would set down our idols and that the weight of the glory of God would crush anything that does not glorify him. And if that has been your experience in church, which sadly is the landscape of many churches, even on this island, not all, but many, I'm sorry that pastors have wasted your time. I'm sorry if I have ever wasted your time. That would, it's been my prayer that, that we would never do so, that by going through the word of God, and it disgusts me. Me and one of our other pastors were looking at a video of a church. I'm not going to mention this church. And this video of the church, it was like, the church is all, I can't even, I can't go to, the church is, they're just missing it completely. It's like, are you playing a game? If this is a religious game, there are a lot of other funner games we can play than this. Like, find a better hobby than coming to church if this is a game, Right? 
It's time for us to see with our eyes the weight and the holiness of God. Verse 1, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Do you see immediately the polarization, the contrast between these two things? There is death and then there is life. There is the death of a king and then there is the life of God. Uzziah is dead. No more crown to be buried with him. No oxygen in his lungs. No pulse to be found in his dead carcass. But while the king is dead, I saw the Lord. Do you think it's an accident? The death of Uzziah and the vision of God are in the same breath and sentence? Not at all. While the king is dead, while Uzziah has bit the dust in the grave, the king of kings is alive. God, God is alive. The king of kings is ruling presently. At the time he saw Isaiah saw him, he's been ruling from eternity past and he has been ruling for evermore. God is alive. God was alive when Eve partook of the fruit and then shared it with Adam. God was there and he was alive when Cain killed Abel. God was alive when David slew Goliath. God was alive when thousands of firstborn sons, two and under, were slain in Israel by the jealous King Herod. God was alive when King Kamehameha ruled the islands. God has been alive in all the highs and the lows of your life. And if you have treated him as dead, it doesn't mean he is dead. Because even in the year when King Uzziah was dead, God was alive. He has been alive. He is alive. God will always be alive. You guys, this eternal God that we worship, that we speak with our mouths, that we say we love, is alive in this present moment. That at 1140, the end of 2014, that God is still alive on his throne. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, verse 1, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Not only is God eternal and not only is God forever and he is alive in this present moment, he is sitting on his throne. Do you see the picture? The king is dead, yes, but the king of kings is still on his throne. 
That while earthly kings have their shot at being king for a couple of decades and then dying, or they get their kingdom overthrown, or their kingdom collapses under their feet, or some jealous relative tries to steal it from them, the king of kings is always on his throne. At this very moment, God is alive on his throne. Do you believe that? It's awesome. It's incredible to think that God is on his throne. But what is his throne like? We were told in verse 1, it is high and lifted up. Do you see the picture? That not only is God alive, but that God is on his throne, high and lifted up. It is the place and the position of ultimate authority. That God is in ultimate authority. When I saw the Lord, did Isaiah say he was low and he was downcast? (laughs) No. God's throne, friends, hear me out. The throne of God is a glorious one. It's not small. It's not weak. God's throne is not lame and pathetic. And it's astonishing though. Yeah, well, I don't believe that. Well, some of us act that way, don't we not? We most certainly do. God's throne is high and lifted up. It's a glorious throne. It's a seat that is only to be reserved for him. I don't know what dinner time looks like at your home. Um, Dinner time at my house is usually a bit wild. We have three boys, three children. And pre-dinner is usually a battle of children fighting for their seats. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I want that seat. I want to sit next to daddy. No, I want to be next to mommy, pushing each other off the chairs, fighting. And we haven't even, food's not even on the table yet. That's, that's dinner for us in the Scott household. And, and it's interesting. At dinner, kids might fight for these other seats at the table. But you know whose fight they never fight, seat they never fight for? Mine. Because I'm their daddy. And they, they know where daddy sits. Daddy sits at the head of the table. My seat was reserved for me. Now, at breakfast time, it's a free-for-all. I usually don't have breakfast with the family just because of work. And, and I, I usually do only on Saturday. But really, breakfast is a free-for-all. They can sit wherever they want. But when it comes to dinner time, they know what seat not to touch. Now, they can sit on daddy's lap. I love them. I love hanging out with them. But my seat is my seat, and they don't mess with it, all right? They know better. Because the head of the table is the seat of authority, the seat of leadership. And while everyone else plays musical chairs, the seat of authority never moves. And here is the picture. God is at the head of the table of all creation. That while all other kings are playing musical chairs and getting their shot at ruling and reigning for a little while, there is only one true ultimate king and only he is really sovereign and only he has ultimate authority and only his throne is high and lifted up. And all other thrones are below him. God is at the head of creation, high and lifted up. So when it comes to God's authority now, right now in this moment, you can, in your mind, okay, deflect, deflect, ignoring pastor right now, or 
we can accept it, we can revel in it, we can come to terms with our position before God and love that he and he alone God's seat is for him and him alone. God is on the throne alone. Does he share it with anyone? When you tap into the glory of God's throne, you begin to realize you are not made to be on the throne, but you are created to worship the one on the throne. God of which Isaiah is seeing him in Isaiah 6.1, has absolute, total, unrivaled authority. I know this is simple, but I'm going to say it again. God has absolute, complete, total, unrivaled authority. And if God, in his position as God, is seated high on his throne, looking down on creation from his eternal perspective, does that not mean that our earthly perspectives are a bit skewed and perverted? This means that we fail to understand as humans what is truly righteous. This means we fail to discern what is truly good. What is truly just? What is truly fair? Do you believe that about yourself? We must. I must believe that about myself, even though I often find myself trying to argue with God on stuff. My dad's still fighting the battle of colon cancer, and there was a bit of a scare this last week that, that there is something that came up which could have been a triggered of more colon cancer, of which he's been fighting for a year now. Thank you for praying for him. For those of you guys who have and continue to pray for him. And, and when the scare happened, thank God it's, it's not cancer, but when the scare happened, I ran to God arguing with him. Do I as a human, not in the place of ultimate authority, understand what is good? So for example, was the death of Jesus Christ a tragedy? course it was. God becoming a man, rejected by his own, shedding of his own blood, all as innocent tragedy. Yet Isaiah 53.10 tells us that the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Tragedy, yes, yet God was pleased to crush and to murder his own son? Or how about Isaiah, 1 Samuel 15, 3? God is speaking to, through the prophet Samuel to King Saul, who was to do what God has commanded him to do. 1 Samuel 5, 13, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you. I will push Amalek, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. For how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. 
Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has. Now reading that, it's like, yeah, that sounds right, God. You go, God. You go, Saul. You go kill that dude. He put his face against the Lord as he was coming up from Egypt. He was in rebellion. You go get Amalek. Go get him. Justice. This is good. Go get him. And do not spare him. Yes and amen. But put to death both men. Wait, hold on. I think uh, Amalek, cool, but the Amalekites? Uh, why? And women. And children. And infants. I'm not implying that God is unholy right now. I am in no way saying that God is unjust. But you gotta, hey, don't you in, in some ounce of your soul kind of get a little bit, at, infants, children, women, Though I'm not implying God is unholy and just, he actually is holy. He is glorious. He is good. Our understanding of good needs to be submitted unto a glorious and good God. God isn't good. Hear me out right now. God isn't good because he fits into your category of what is good. God isn't good because he fits into my definition and understanding of what is good. God is good in his action because God is good in his nature. God defines what is good and God is the ultimate fulfillment of good. So if there's something good in creation, it's pointing to the one who's truly good. Like, yeah, but the law, the Ten Commandments, I mean, love and goodness. I mean, look, just, let's just talk about goodness for a little bit. Well, did God not create the law? And is not the one who created the law greater than the law and the fulfillment of the law? I mean, as I have begun to understand these truths in my Christian life, some of the things that I've understood and some of my own perception of life have begun to unravel before my eyes. You guys, the same is true about love. The same is true about love. God isn't loving because he fits into our category of loving. God is loving because God is love. God defines what is love and God is the ultimate source in love because God is love. God is the fulfillment of what is love. Do you see how our understanding of the holiness and the nature and the character of God is perverted by our own sinfulness? That even in the name of good and in the love, and in the name of good, in the name of love, you and I can commit treason and labeling God to be unjust and labeling God to be ungood and labeling God to be unfair. 
There is only one throne and only one king who sits upon it. And when we believe it, and when we understand it, how then could we criticize God? How could we? How could we raise our fists and rebellion against God? How could we put God on trial? God, what do you think you're doing right now? My dad isn't fighting cancer for love. Come on, God. But you know I have bills to pay. I mean, the suffering I'm going through, and we could try to put God on trial. But Paul in Romans 9 says, and it's in context, who are you, O man? Who are you, O man? To answer back to God. That's the Bible's reply. Uh-huh. Who are you? In fact, part of God's rebuke to, to Job was, were you there when I flew the stars into the, into the sky? Were you there when I created everything? Were you there when my voice speaks and a, bir- a deer gives birth? Were you there, Job? In other words, God says, shut up, Job. <laughs> that's, 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 the, that's the original Hebrew, pretty much. <laughs> Not true, but somewhat true. Who are you, a man, to answer back to God? For what right does the clay have to say over the potter what its use is for? God will take this clay and create out of it a beautiful vessel and raise it up for his own destructive purposes, for his glory. And then God will take another beautiful clay pot, make it and and raise it for his glorious purposes. God is an ultimate authority. This is echoed by the prophet Daniel in Daniel 4.35. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as how much? Nothing. As he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one. Because he and he alone is high and lifted up. Okay, so if God is alive, which we know he is, if God is enthroned high and lifted up and we realize we have no right to even question him, (laughs) makes us feel a little bit small, doesn't it? What then does that demand of creation? If these things are true about God, what does this require of creation itself? Verse two, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. If these things are true about God, 
What does this demand of his creation? Adoration and eternal worship. What would we do but glorify and worship this almighty and incredible God? A few nights ago, um, actually, it was almost, I think it was almost a week ago, we had that thunderstorm that, that came through. And I, I've talked to some people, and some people were like, it wasn't even rain. There was, there was a clear skies at my house. And I was like, well, it seemed like the apocalypse was over my house, at least that night. But it was, uh, it was I, and I love me a good thunderstorm. Like, they're awesome. And so this, this thunder is over our house, just, and, and just rattling our, like, actually shaking our home. So powerful. And then I watched the storm move from over our house uh, uh, over to offshore, over the ocean. And then I watched the lightning and the thunder pierce the sound. And I would hear um, over, uh, you know, on, hear over the ocean the, the echo of it. And then hear the thunder bouncing off of Hulalai and just echoing back and forth. And it was absolutely incredible. And it just reminded me of how small I was. And just even at the sound of thunder, the sound that the subwoofer of creation would rattle the foundation, or at least it would seem, of our home. Now here in Isaiah 6, we are introduced to these Unknown creatures, they might be seraphim. There is a seraphim standing above God, but then there are these other winged creatures, it would seem. They never appear anywhere else in the Bible, actually. This is the only place they appear in the scriptures. And Isaiah, in his vision, sees these creatures worshiping God. And what are they crying out? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, the whole earth is full of his glory. These creatures, it's not God who's speaking here at the end of verse four. These creatures' voices and their praise to God is shaking the foundations of the threshold, which if you're shaking the foundation of the throne of God, it means all creation's foundation is shaking. And these creatures, guys, at their voice, shaking the foundations of all creation with two wings are covering their face, two wings covering their feet. Why? They are in shame before a glorious and holy and mighty God. Have they ever sinned? No. No. These creatures have never sinned. They've only known God. They've only been with God yet. And their holiness and perfection are putting their wings above their face, putting their wings above their feet in shame, trying to hide themselves from the glory of God. God, because he is alive, is on a throne. He will be praised. God demands praise. Now, is it selfish for God to demand praise? Well, if he, uh, and he alone is worthy, then of course not. 
If he and he alone is worthy of all praise and adoration, it is only right for God to demand all the glory of all creation to point to and be about himself. It would be unjust for God to give worship and glory to anyone or anything else. He wouldn't do it, and he couldn't do it. Bound by his own glory and goodness. God does not praise angels. God does not share his glory with creation because God never gives worship. He only receives it. Those who behold and love the holiness of God are captivated by the glory of God. Because no one greater can be praised. You guys know what the glory of God is? They're singing it here in this verse. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his what? Glory. The glory of God is the exploitation of his holiness. The glory of God is making known to, or the, the glory of God is making known to his creation all of his holiness. Now it would be good for us to know what holiness means here. In these verses, holiness means set apart for God. So set apart for God. Perfect, sanctified, whole. That's what holy means. But what happens when you take a word that is used to describe holy Bible? So the Bible, holy Bible, we agree. There's a holy Bible. It's set apart for God. It's perfect. It is, it is whole. It is complete. It's holy. Holy saints, his holy bride, his holy church. What happens when you take a word that is used to describe things that are set apart for God to then say that God is holy? Language is failing us here. Language is failing us in the worship of this glorious God. L language has hit its, its limit. Like my friend's dad who let me borrow his sports car. This is in my rebellious days, just so you know. I don't encourage anyone to do this. Going about 150, finally the speed governor kicked in. And it still had more power to go. Isaiah is writing down this vision of which he's seen of the Lord and holy is the best he's got. And they say it three times. The whole earth is full of it, his glory. We can't even describe it. So when we begin to understand this uncensored biblical view of a holy and glorious God, what is left for you and for me? Verse five. And I said, Isaiah speaking here. Okay. Use your imagination. He sees all of this and he says what? Woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of an unclean people. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What is Isaiah's response? Oh my God. 
he sees God and he is blown away so much so that he immediately has self-realization. Dang it. I'm in trouble. These creatures are worshiping him. They've never sinned. At their voices, the foundations of creation, the threshold are shaking. Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean. He says lips there, lips speaking of symbolic of the flesh. You can know when you have experienced a new understanding of God when you are crushed by the weight of his own glory. When God crushes your pride, when God reveals to you your sin, you're like, oh, this is bad. This is not good. Then you can know you begin to understand and grasp the glory of God. It's crushing because no one can stand before God and have swagger. No one can stand before God and have pride. No one can stand before God like, hey, God, so what's up? I'm awesome. You were going to stand before him one day when you breathe your last. And when you stand before him, you will fear him. I will fear him. And he has new understanding of God. I'm not saying salvation, it could mean this for you. But that with new eyes, we would see in the scriptures through the power of the Holy Spirit, the weight and the glory of God in a deeper way. Knowing his holiness and glory and knowing that we are sinful makes God all the more glorious and wonderful and beautiful. Why spend all of this time to talk about this? If you settle today, right now, where glory is due, all the other fringe issues of your life will be settled. Doesn't mean they'll be solved on this side of glory, but they will be settled. Because if we get God right, we get everything right. And if we get God wrong, eternity and eternal punishment and hell is in the balance for getting him wrong. But getting him right is enjoying him for all eternity. Glory is in the Bible over 270 times. It is the mega theme of all creation. So let me ask you, are you going to keep living and loving your own glory? Are you going to live for his greater glory? Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand, having in his hand a burning coal, and he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, your sins atone for. No one experiences the glory of God without being crushed and devastated by their own sin. I knew someone who, they said they met Jesus in the flesh. Uh, she was working as a receptionist at a hotel in some snowy place, I can't remember where. And a dude with slippers 
shorts and an Aloha shirt of all things walks in and starts talking story with her. Come to find out this person was Jesus, at least that's what she told me. They had a nice little conversation and then he disappeared. I have a hard time believing that she saw God because of Isaiah 6. In the presence of God, we will fall flat on our face and we will worship him. It's the same response Job gave when God gives him the heavy rebuke that he did. He said, I've heard in my heart I have heard you by the hearing of my ear, but now I see you with my eyes. Therefore, I despise of myself. I repent in dust and in ashes. So does God leave Isaiah the way that he found him at the beginning of verse one? Of course not. We read here of this seraphim grabbing from tongs from the altar this hot coal. Coal and the altar are repre- represent purification by blood. The altar. The fire of which was inside the coal was representative, symbolic, symbolizes the, the Holy Spirit. So do you see the picture of the gospel in these verses here, six and seven of what's taking place. You have this, this seraphim going up to this man by, blood, by the blood of Jesus Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit sanctifying this man. Now, of course, this is symbolic, but this is true. That God will not leave you where he will at and by his blood and through the Holy Spirit fire Will he sanctify you, grow you, and build you to become a wonderful worshiper of him and a disciple, a discipler of other people? The most tender part of the body, one of the most tender parts of the body, are the lips. So the seraphim walks over to the altar, picks up with tongs, carries it over, scalding hot. Chars the lips of Isaiah, symbolizing his sanctification. Saved, yes. Sanctified, all the more so. Sanctification fun. Listen, if you're in a tough place in your relationship with God and he's just rough, Maybe it's the work of God sanctifying you. Maybe it's the putting on of your flesh, as it were, and God singeing away what does not belong. It hurts. It stings. But it is so worth it. You guys, this is our God. He is glorious and wonderful. Put your hope in an authoritative, absolute, holy God. It hurts to be dethroned, doesn't it? But then when you see the king of kings on his throne, it makes everything right. 
because the greatest king is on his throne. He will be on his throne. He will always be on his throne. Our great king has defeated sin and death. And so this morning, do not just be in his kingdom, but be a wonderful, great worshiper of the king. For he is worthy to be praised. May we realize we have uttered and spoken things of which we did not understand. Too wonderful us to even put into words. Responding to him with the adoration of our life. Because God has made a way. And is God good? Yes, he is good. Then why Isaiah 53.10? Why did it please God to crush his own son? It pleased God first because it satisfied his wrath. God had wrath that was to be poured out on sinful man and it was pleasing to him to pour out his wrath upon sinful man. Then why did it please God on top of that to kill his own son? Because in doing so, he got you and me through the blood of Jesus Christ. God is glorious and God is good. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are on the throne, high and lifted up, worthy of all praise, all adoration, we give you all of our lives. May we come to bear the weight of your glory through the power of the Holy Spirit. May we not try to censor and block out these things that we do not feel comfortable with about you, but may we realize that everything in all creation, all that is good, all that is glorious, all that is pleasurable, all that is fantastic and amazing are all just shadows pointing to you, the substance. You were supreme. For in you and by you and through you were all things made. May you be preeminent in our midst and in our lives. Would you renew our minds through the power of your word? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We hope that Jesus is doing a work in your life from the message that you just heard. We would love to hear how you were impacted and what was impressed on your heart. Share your story by emailing connect at shorebreakchurch.com. And if you don't know Jesus as God, Lord and Savior, or you have more questions, send us an email to info at shorebreakchurch.com so we can get you dialed in with a free Bible and resources for your new relationship with Jesus.